Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Joining us at church uh, again, it is an honor to have you. And as I was praying for the services this week, I just I just felt like I needed to share this before we jumped in too deep to the word. I really do believe God brought you here for a purpose this morning. I met somebody at the nine o'clock service who was here for the first time, gave their life to Jesus, and is getting plugged in and jumping through first forty. And uh, I think that God ordained that meeting between he and her at the nine a.m. And if you're here this morning and it is your first time, I think God wants to talk to you. I think there's some things He wants to share with you, and I believe He called you here for a purpose this morning. So tune in and listen because he's got some stuff to say. Uh, but if it is your first time or you've been out for a few weeks, you've caught us in uh, near the end of a series that we've been in um, called uh, Prepare the Way, where we are discussing this foundational promise that God made to us as a community uh, before we ever started gathering back in 2017. Uh, that promise, it comes in the form of a prayer that the prophet Isaiah offers up in the 62nd chapter of his book uh, on behalf of the Jewish people, having spent 400 years in slavery, uh, God had delivered them, but then they fell back into some of their old ways, and he delivered them once again into the hands of the Babylonians in captivity. Uh, but Isaiah begins to prophesy here about a time that would come after the 70 years of captivity where God would deliver them once again and bring them back into their city of Jerusalem. Uh, but as we begin to read through this in 2017, the Holy Spirit permitted us to personalize some of these promises, to change the names a little bit in this chapter of Scripture, and use it as a template to declare not what he's done in the past, but what he will do once again in our city and in our day. Uh, our key text is found in Isaiah 62.10, where he writes this. Go out through the gates, smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, and read this with me. Prepare the way for my people to return. I got that wrong in the first service. So prepare the way for my people to return. In the first week, we spent a lot of time looking at just that verse and talked about how our job as a community is to get rid of the rocks and stones in the road that people trip on on their way to Christ and to be a place where prodigals can return back to Jesus, specifically to remove that stone of shame that so many trip over on their way uh, back to the house of God and back to the community of faith. Uh, and then in the second week, we talked about the new names that are given to us in Isaiah 62 as we discussed the subject of identity and the crucial role identity plays in the way we live our lives. In the third week, we talked about crossing over some lines, and I love this part of the promise, the promise that says people are no longer gonna be robbed from the house of God to go back to their old ways, but they will remain safely within his house. Uh, in the fourth week, we talked about walls and how God has given each of us one to pray from. We all have a wall, and our job is to pray fervent prayers until the city of San Francisco shines like the dawn, until her righteousness blazes like a burning torch. And then last week, we put a ring on it, uh, <laughs> talked about being the bride, and uh, specifically about committing ourselves to the city he's called us to, like a young man commits himself to his bride. Uh, if you missed any of those, please go back and check them out. I really do think this is an important series for all of us to have in our hearts, because this is the foundational promise he's made to us as a house. Uh, but today, as we get into the sixth week, we find yet another promise, and this one on the heels of the main text we've been considering uh, every single week. In the second half of verse 10, I go, Isaiah goes on to say, raise a signal flag for all the nations to see. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of San Francisco, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. 
Again, disclaimer, we've done this almost every week, just in case you're new. The Bible doesn't actually say San Francisco, okay? You're like, what translation are you reading from? It's, it's us. God, God allowed us to change and parenthesize our city to personalize the promise, but don't, don't fear. We're not changing scripture. The Bible does not say San Francisco. However, in light of that text, uh, I wanna offer you a title today. And uh, another disclaimer, this is a bit of a dangerous title um, because it, it might appeal uh, to some of the closet Pentecostals in this church and uh, allow them to assume that permission is being granted to do something you don't see normally here on a Sunday morning. But I assure you up front, especially for my Baptist friends in the room, this is not, it's gonna be okay, all right? That's not what's happening during this sermon. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna title this sermon today, Flags in Church. <laughs> Flags in, but not like that, just to be clear. Flags in Church. Uh, let, let's pray and, and we'll invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that the timeless uh, messages contained in these scriptures still have the ability to transform our lives thousands of years after they were written. Thank you for the ability the Holy Spirit gives us to personalize these promises and recognize that they're just as alive and well to us today as they were thousands of years ago to a specific people you wrote to. And, and Lord, as we, uh, as we go to the text today, I pray that you would both allow us to personalize this, but that you would allow your word to do what it promises, that it would illuminate, transform, that we would leave this place thinking differently and thereby living differently as a result of what you speak to us today. And even as we sang about a moment ago, I pray anyone who feels defeated today would recognize that victory is theirs because of this promise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Come on, you said you were gonna be loud and the church said, amen. I'ma hold you to it, man. I'ma hold you to it. So here's the deal. I was studying this week and in preparation for um, this sermon, and I was kind of heading down a, a rabbit trail in my studies, which is not abnormal. I generally find myself on many rabbit trails while I'm trying to figure out what to say on any given weekend. And in about an hour into this rabbit trail, I was studying through the, the power of flags throughout history, and I stumbled on this TED Talk from a vexillologist, which is a fancy name for a flag expert, a guy named Michael Green, who was giving a presentation called The Power of Flags. And it was captivating. I encourage you to go back, check it out. It, it, it's really, really insightful. But he made some statements about flags that I wrote down because I thought this is the perfect launching pad for the conversation we're gonna have today. Uh, he said, this. He said, flags are the simplest pieces of design, yet they can invoke the deepest emotions within us. They'll make us swell up with pride or burn with hatred. We will die for a flag, even kill for one. We don't often think of flags as weapons, but they are. Powerful words, insightful words, and I, and I think we would all recognize them to be true. Like, like today, if you just sat there for a moment and closed your eyes and pictured a flag, pick a flag, any flag, immediately you are aware that that flag is communicating a message to you. And based on the way you perceive that message, it might stir up, as he said, some pride or, or potentially even some hatred on the inside of you. Every flag communicates something. And not, not to step on any toes, but just this is true. If you were to walk out of the room today and you were to find a Ukrainian flag hanging in front of somebody's house or a business, you would immediately recognize the, the statement that's being made by that flag. The person hanging it is either Ukrainian or they're standing in solidarity with a nation as they find themselves in the middle of war. If you were to walk out and you were to see an Israeli flag or a Palestinian flag in front of somebody's house, you would immediately recognize the message that's being communicated as a result of the turmoil in the Middle East right now. 
If you were to get on a plane, fly across the country to Washington, D.C., and you were to tour the Capitol building or some of the government buildings surrounding it, and you saw American flags everywhere, you would recognize that those flags are communicating a message. There's a reason they're hanging from all of those government buildings. I don't mean that as a political statement. It's just the truth. All flags make a statement. And what is true in the natural is also true of the Scriptures. Anytime you see a flag mentioned in Scripture, specifically this signal flag that we read of here in Isaiah 62, there is a message being communicated to the reader. A message that we are not only intended to recognize, but a message that should stir up some kind of an emotional response on the inside of us, just as our vexillologist suggested. And the message that we are intended to receive when we see this signal flag in scripture is one you were singing out at the top of your lungs just a moment ago when just the drums were going and it was like an 80s ballad in here. The message we are intended to receive when we see a signal flag is that your enemy has been defeated. Okay, there we go. Let me say that again. Your enemy has been defeated. All right. Yeah, that is the message that we are intended to receive. In military terms, um, a signal flag in, in ancient times was a means of communication. It was used during battle uh, so that the commander or a group uh, of individuals who had won a piece of ground could communicate to the troops below. As you can imagine, in, in biblical times or in ancient times, they didn't have walkie-talkies or normal communication devices like we do today. Uh, and yet there was still a need to communicate the state of a battle to the troops. And often the way that that message was communicated was through a flag that was posted in a high place, a hill or a wall, that would alert the troops below that this piece of strategic ground has been taken. The victory has been won and the enemy has been defeated. Now, th there's a lot of speculation about what the, the signal flag in scripture looks like. An another fact I learned during another rabbit trail during my studies. Uh, some believe that the image on a signal flag was that of a lion in keeping with uh, God's statement of himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I just thought that would be a really awesome flag flying out there on the top of the hill. I'm like, okay, I like that idea. But, but, but others believe that each of the 12 tribes had their own flag. And based on whatever group of individuals got to the top of that high place first, they would get to plant their flag as a sign of victory. It's kind of a, a competition between the troops. It's, you know, the U.S. versus China versus Russia, whoever gets to space first, they get to plant their flag on the moon and say, well, this is my moon, and, you know, that's kind of that sort of situation. And, of course, there are some Americans who think the biblical signal flag was an American flag because that's what they read on Facebook. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But <clears throat> the truth is, nobody really knows what the signal flag looked like. And despite the fact that we don't know, I, I still wanted to find a way to illustrate this thought today so that we can kind of wrap our heads around the power of this signal flag. Um, however, I don't want to offend anybody. You know, last thing I want is someone taking a picture next to me with the wrong flag in the background and I end up getting blasted on social media. So instead, I decided to uh, use a flag this morning that honestly I did not even know existed until my oldest daughter started going to junior high at a Christian school. Friends, I offer you the Christian flag. <laughs> I did not even know that this flag was a thing. How many of you knew that there was a Christian flag? You squares, come on, what's going on here? Yeah, so there's a Christian flag. And, and I, 
the, the kids at this school, they, they are literally forced to pledge allegiance to this flag every single day during the week, which I just feel like is a teensy bit cultish, you know, just a little bit, like all these students, you know, to the, but I'm sure it's fine, you know? So my kid's last science project taught her how to make Kool-Aid. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Worst case, she grows up, she buys a compound. She, at least she owns real estate, you know, it's awesome. <laughs> in unrelated news, um, we have TFH flags for sale in the lobby after church today. If anyone says, I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, we only give those out to the truly committed people. <laughs> Can't wait to see it discover later. Just kidding, okay. So here's how this, this whole thing went down. Uh, let's pretend uh, we are all in an army. I'm in the Lord's army. See, it is a cult. Okay, uh, no, I'm in the Lord's army. And you are the troops down there below fighting for a piece of land, a strategic piece of land. And, and a group of us are up here on a, on a higher uh, mountaintop or another strategic position, and we're fighting for land up here. Turns out, while you're fighting down there, we've actually been able to secure a very strategic piece of real estate up here at the higher elevations. It is, in fact, this subwoofer. But we need to communicate to the troops below that we've seen victory up here at the higher place because we need to establish a rally point and let you know that the stronghold of the enemy has already been defeated and as long as you continue to fight down there in the valley, victory is going to be yours. And so as the flag bearer, my job would be to find myself at the high place up here above the battle and plant this flag so that all of the troops down below can see Usually accompanied, oh, come on. Usually accompanied by the blast of a shofar, so that all of the troops would look up and recognize that the strategic piece of ground had been won. If you fight, you win. Victory is ours. Our enemy has been defeated. Generally accompanied by a shout from the troops because they recognize that the enemy's gone down. down. That was a little better. At the first service, they were like, Wee! And I'm like, apparently I'm in an army full of white girls drinking Starbucks. That's awesome. Great. <laughs> Yay, Frappuccinos, PSO. <laughs> so, so when Isaiah says in the 62nd chapter in the 10th verse that a signal flag has been raised for the nations to see, this is the declaration that's being made. That there is a, a, a banner, a flag raised over our enemy declaring that our God has been victorious. Now, now, that's a, a great piece of history and perhaps a tad inspirational and fun to act out, but it doesn't have a lot of practical application. At the end of the day, it still kind of leaves us asking the question, well, what, is, what does this mean to us? How does this aspect of the promise get applied to our day-to-day -day lives? Well, well, for that, we need to trace this signal flag back to its origin in Scripture to discover how we can apply this truth to our own lives. Uh, it, it finds its origin back in Exodus chapter 17. Um, the, the, this time in history, the, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt and now they've crossed the Red Sea and they are in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Uh, but they've decided to take a moment and camp at this place called Rephidim. Uh, when they get there, they discover there's no water and so everybody's thirsty. They complain against Moses and God and uh, God does this really cool miracle where he, he makes water come from a rock. Go back and read it. It's awesome. But while they're there camping in Rephidim, they are surrounded by the Amalekite army. Uh, they didn't know they were getting themselves into a battle. Had they known, they would have moved on. But 
because they're there, these Amalekites who lived in the surrounding cities came and they rose up against the Israelites. And on the morning of this battle, God gives Moses, the leader of the people, a bit of an odd battle plan, a, a weird strategy, but, but one where this flag comes into the scriptures for the first time. God tells Moses that while the troops are fighting in the valley below, he is to go up on the mountain nearby and stand over the troops and hold his staff over the battlefield. And the scripture tells us that as Moses holds his staff over the battle, that the Israelites are capable of defeating the Amalekites. But every time Moses' hand begins to drop, he gets tired, the Amalekites begin to defeat the Israelites. And so, with the assistance of some buddies, Moses holds his staff over the valley, and all day long the battle rages until the Israelites deal a crushing blow to the Amalekites, and the victory for God's people is secure. But, but then, the story doesn't end, it, Scripture goes on to say that it was there on this mountain where Moses looked out over the battle, that he built an altar, and he named that altar Jehovah Nisi, a name that in the Hebrew translated means the Lord is my signal flag. The Lord is my banner. In other words, in the same way that I was able to raise the staff over the battle and as long as my hand remained raised, victory was certain, so God is like a flag that flies over his people declaring to those fighting below, victory is yours in me. Your enemy has already been defeated and as long as you keep on fighting, you shall win. That's the message of the flag that the enemy's been defeated, death couldn't hold him down, that if you fight, you win because your God stands above your circumstance. If I could say it like this, I'd borrow a phrase from the preachers of old. What Isaiah is attempting to tell us here is that when we fight, we fight from victory, not for victory. Thank you, Justin. When we fight, we fight from it. Positionally, we walk into every battle recognizing we win. We're not fighting for it. We understand up front, this is victory. Even if the combat rages, even if the battle gets difficult, I'm walking into this battle recognizing I already win. Let, let me remind you of something today. The scriptures never promised that you would not have to fight. If someone sold you on the idea of Christianity as this peacemaking, you never have to worry about going through difficult situations. You just hang out and um, that's not the faith. That's not what Jesus promised. In fact, Jesus promised the, the opposite. He said, in this world, you will see troubles. You're going to go through some trials. You're going to have to deal with some enemies. You're going to square up toe to toe against the enemy from time to time. But he followed up that truth with a promise when he said, yeah, you'll see troubles, but fear not. I have actually already overcome the world. Past tense, it's already done. I already laid the enemy out, as Robin shared earlier. Every fight you walk into is a fight against a pre-defeated enemy. The outcome is already certain. If you fight, you're going to win every single time. And so as I was thinking about this concept, I'm like, okay, that's fun. It's a cool phrase. And, you know, that's why preachers used it. But, like, this is not normal. So how do I, how do I wrap our heads around this idea of fighting positionally from victory? 
It's a cool thought, but it's not normally how we go about the battle, if you will. We look at the circumstance. We look at, at the potential, the, the, the things we're facing, and we determine the outcome based on our opposition, not walking in confidently. How do we, how do we change our perspective? And as I was trying to find a way to illustrate this, a thought came to mind that I honestly put in my pocket. I'm like, no, I can't share that. And then I asked Robin about it, and she said, no, you should, you should use that, as a, that example. And my fear was that in sharing this, I would lose some credibility because it's not a very pastoral example. Uh, but I think Robin is, is sabotaging me here. So we're gonna, we're gonna just go ahead and share it anyway. So, so in my younger days, um, I, I, uh, I played a little bit of poker. I know. There's a reason the word pastor starts with past. Uh, I have one. Uh, so I, pray, I played some poker, like for money. Some might call it a, a gambling problem. Some. <laughs> it was back in the day when the World Series of Poker was getting really popular and everyone watching was like, oh, this is a quick way to get rich and I'm gonna learn how to play poker. And, you know, I, I, my mind kind of works that way. And so I'm like, oh, this is, this, this is the plan. But, but, but I don't do that anymore, just to be clear. I, I don't have a gambling problem anymore. Your tithe is safe, okay, just to be clear. Like... <laughs> I spent all of my free time now fasting and praying for all of you. The only cards I count are the cards inside this box of the names of people that are coming to Jesus. I'm just, I'm a holy guy. But, and I know most of you guys are holy, so you wouldn't understand this, but for those of us who were not in the past, you'll get this analogy. If you've played poker before, and if you're any good, there, there's this magical moment where all the cards are dealt and you're looking at your hand and you recognize nobody can beat me. I have the best hand on the table. And, and, and in that moment, you kind of keep your cool because you're like, I understand that everybody at this table is defeated. Now I'm just going to see how much I can take from them. I'm sorry. That's, this is who I used to be. It's not who I am today. Just, just to be clear. But there's this mindset shift. There's this moment where you recognize, I've already won. And in that moment, when you recognize that your cards are the best cards at the table, nobody else stands a chance, you utter those two famous words, I'm all in. You shove all your chips to the center of the table with confidence, understanding as long as I keep playing this game, I'm taking all the money at this table right now. If I fight, I will win. That is exactly what it means to approach the battle from victory, not for victory. It is a mindset, a strategic insight that says, I know that the battle might rage, but I'm not losing this one because my God has already defeated the enemy that I'm facing. And as long as I keep playing the game, as long as I keep fighting, come on, I'm preaching the Texas Hold'em gospel to you right now. Let me remind you of your position in Christ. You've already won. Colossians 2.15, it says that your enemy was disarmed when Jesus robbed him of all of his authority and stripped him away as he shamed him publicly on the cross. Your enemy has no power. He tries as hard as he can. He's all bark. He's no bite. You're already facing a defeated enemy. He lost a battle 2,000 years ago at a cross, and he's trying as best as he can to get ground back but it's already finished. It's already done. He can try to attack, but that attack is never going to win because every battle he's gotten into since then is a battle he can't fight. He can try. He, he, he can try to attack you with shame, but your shame was paid for on the cross. 
He can try to attack you with regret, but forgiveness was offered on the cross. He can try to attack with paranoia and anxiety, but your peace was paid for on the cross. He could even try to take your life, but as Robin shared earlier, the keys to death, hell, and the grave have already been secured by the victory that Jesus won on the cross. There at Golgotha 2,000 years ago, a signal flag was raised that echoes to the ages. It is finished. Your enemy's defeated. Come on, somebody. And you win if you fight. And I, I know that that can sound like preacher talk or hyperbole, but if that sounds like I'm trying to hype something up in you, then look around the room as proof of what I'm saying right now. Every time someone gives their life to Jesus at the end of a service, a signal flag is raised in the church. Every time somebody's baptized in water and they come out with their hands lifted in victory as they walk into freedom, a signal flag is raised in church. Every single time a marriage is restored, a signal flag is raised. A prodigal comes home, a sickness is healed, a blood clot is dissolved on the inside inside of a portal vein in a 12-year-old girl. A signal flag is raised in the house of God declaring your enemy has been defeated and nothing can hold you down. Somebody better blow a shofar right now. <laughs> don't blow a shofar. We don't do that here either. That's the truth. Positionally, you've won. But let's be honest. So, the clapping ends, people sit down, the emotion wanes, and then we're left with reality. The reality is that while that might be good and it might be true, it doesn't seem to be my experience all the time. Uh, okay, I understand what you're saying, but if my enemy has been defeated, then why, why does it feel like he's winning? Why, why, is my marriage still so broken? Why can't I shake the addiction? Why hasn't the, the diagnosis changed? If my enemy has been defeated, then why does it feel like he's defeating me? I think that's a valid question because we, we, we face that. That's reality, that's life. Okay, I get what the scriptures say, but my life is not aligning with this reality right now. Why? And if I could, not to oversimplify or overstep, let me, let me offer an observation. To borrow a lyric from another song we, we sang earlier, I think one of the main reasons that we can find ourselves feeling defeated in the midst of battle is because in the heat of combat, all we see is the valley. We sang that earlier. When all I see is the valley, sometimes that's all we can see. Back to Rephidim, the Israelites find themselves camping here. Turns out, these Amalekites that attacked them, they have a, a relatively significant name. In the Hebrew, their name defined, it means of the valley. So when the people of God were supposed to be resting at this place, they encountered the enemy of the valley, the enemy of the low place, the enemy of the dark place, the enemy that keeps you from seeing the light limits your perspective as a result of the shadows you find in the valley. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone ever counted the enemy of the valley before? The one who kicks you when you're down? The one who tries to hold you hostage to the shadows? The one that keeps reminding you of your failures, trying to sabotage your future? That one. And maybe, maybe you're facing that enemy right now. 
Maybe you find yourself in combat in a valley season right now. And if so, let me caution you with something. Here's what I've noticed in my own life and, and here's what I've noticed in the lives of others. When all we see is the valley, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves flying the wrong flag. Instead of seeing Jehovah Nissi, the one who stands above it all, we can find ourselves waving one of these. You know what this is, right? Yeah. It's the universal sign of surrender, defeat. It's the flag you wave when you're tired of fighting, when you feel outnumbered, outgunned, exhausted, when it feels like you're making no progress, when how many times you tried to stop, you keep doing it, how many times you promised God you wouldn't go back, you keep going back. It's the flag you wave from the valley when you feel like there's no hope of ever making it to the mountaintop. You just wave the flag and say, I give up. You can have this ground. I'm not fighting for this anymore because it seems like the harder I fight, the worse it gets. I just, I'm done. And I think a lot of Christians end up here. They still come to church, still sing the songs. On the outside, it looks like they're people of faith, but there's areas of their life where they've just waved the white flag and given up. In fact, let me pose the question to you as we do every single week and force us to get uncomfortable and personalize this content lest we think it's a great concept but never really allow it to mess with us and convict us. Let me ask you today, have you surrendered? As you consider your life, the, the areas, the things God's called you to fight for, are there things that you have just chosen to stop fighting for? Have you stopped fighting for your marriage while it's in a valley? It's just, it's, it can't be restored after what's been done. Your kids, the calling of God on your life. I love the words of Paul. Live a life worthy of the calling because you have been called. Every person in this room has been called. There's something God has for you. But if it gets too challenging to fight for, we can acquiesce and say, yeah, you can have that ground. Your purity. I'm just so tired of fighting and failing. How about your peace? The peace that's only supposed to be available in Jesus, and yet there's coping mechanisms that beckon and say you can find it a lot faster this way. And so I'll just go to the quick fix instead of fighting for what's mine. Are, are there areas of your life where you just, you've given up and you stop fighting? Given up ground because you're just exhausted in the valley. If so, I honestly believe in my hard heart so the Holy Spirit brought you here today so that you can get some ground back. So that you would not allow the enemy to take up residence in ground that God has already won, but that you would recognize there is still a banner flying over the midst of your valley and his name is Jesus. He's already conquered what you're facing and this is not where it ends for you. Yeah, he might have come after your marriage, but the scriptures say what God brought together, nobody can tear apart. He might have come after your calling, but the scriptures declare that God still has a good plan for your life. It's to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. He might have come for your peace, but your peace was already paid for, so he can't try to take it because the price has been settled. You pick 
As we said earlier, you pick your situation, you pick your valley, your Jesus still stands above everything that you face, declaring if you keep fighting, you will win. But your battle strategy might need to shift. There's a way to fight, and as odd as the strategy of Moses is, this this may not make much sense, but it's proven effective through the generations. And if you are going to be a person who fights from victory, not for it, a person who recognizes that that this ground has already been won and I'm not gonna give back to the enemy what Jesus paid for, then here's the two words you need to remember. You need to look up. Look up. Not here, not in the valley. You need to set your gaze at a higher elevation. Look again at what Isaiah says after telling us that this signal flag has been raised for all the nations to see. He concludes his thought in verse 11 by saying this, and and with this I'll invite the worship team to come. He says, hey, look up. Your savior is coming. I didn't say this at the last service, but I'll say it at this one because the Holy Spirit whispered into my ear and I'm like, no, we don't have time. You just have to go to the 11 o'clock service and say this. I, I love that it says your savior is coming because it's pointing to something It's pointing into the future. And many times we read scriptures like this and we're like, yes, he is coming, he is coming, he's coming. He's already come. It's done. Not, Not only has the promise that God made to his people in this passage of scripture already taken place, but the promise he's made to all of us found in Jesus has already been secured on the cross. It's past tense. We could literally change the translation and say, look up because your savior has already come. It's a done deal. We we have to keep our eyes on the banner that flies above the valley. if, If our victory is up there, we cannot be focused down here. Our fight may be down here, but our focus needs to remain on the one who stands above everything that we will face in this life. We gotta look up. We gotta look up. I love the story in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a, a really cool story about the prophet Elisha and his servant there in a city called Dothan. Uh, at this point, the king of Aram, uh, one of the surrounding nations, is, uh, is kind of ticked with Elijah, Elisha because Elisha keeps giving prophetic words about the battle strategy of Aram and his enemies. And so anytime they go out to war, it's like their efforts are undermined as a result of Elisha's prophetic insight. And so, the Aramean army one day surrounds the city of Dotham just to arrest these two guys. Sends a whole army to arrest a prophet and his sidekick. And, and the, 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 the prophet's uh, sidekick walks out one day and he sees this massive army surrounding the city knowing that they're coming for just the two of them. And you know, he freaks out as you would expect and he runs back to Elisha and he's like, we gonna die. This is it, we gonna die. I don't know what we're gonna do. And Elisha has this like, steady prophet-like response. He, he looks back at his servant and he says this in verse 16. Don't trip. <laughs> Chill, homie, it's gonna be all right. Don't be afraid. <laughs> For there are more on our side than on theirs. And then Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open my servant's eyes and let him see. And look at this. The Lord opened the young man's eyes And when he what? When he looked up, 
he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. When he looked out, he was terrified. When he looked out, he all but grabbed his white flag and said, I surrender. But when he looked up, he saw the signal. He saw a flag, he saw a sign, he saw an army that surrounded the enemies which were surrounding him. If you're ever wondering where the lyric of that song came from, it's right there. It might feel like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. I'm walking into a battle, but I'm acknowledging because I've looked up that my God is already surrounding the enemy that is surrounding me. And so I can walk into this thing with confidence, recognizing if I fight, I'm gonna win. My God has already determined the outcome of this battle. And so I'm fighting from victory, not for victory. If we are gonna be those who fight from that position, we cannot afford to meddle in the affairs down below. We need to lift our gaze, people. We need to look to the one that already stands above our circumstance. As it says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes and I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. As Paul declares in Colossians chapter two, I will set my mind on things above, not the things that are happening down here, but on things above because it's up there where I find my victory. I will fix my eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of my faith. The one who went to the cross and endured its shame so that he could strip the enemy of all of his power and I could walk in victory. And we need to remember what it says in Philippians 2, that God has given him the name that is above every other name. He's elevated him, lifted him up to the highest place of honor, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, both in the heavens above and on the earth below, that he is Lord, he's Jehovah Nissi, he stands above it all, and if we fight in his name, we will win. I'm here to stir some faith in people today, to get some fight back in you to quit waving white flags, because that's not what believers do, but to stand in victory with a high heel on, shoved in the neck of your enemy, because you already win. Come on, give me a shout of victory as we conclude today. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, let this settle in our hearts today. May this go beyond word and concept. May it become a positional understanding for each and every one of us. May there be something that shifts, a perspective that shifts as we look out over the valley. May we see a pre-defeated enemy as we lift our eyes above the fights, the anguish, the diagnosis, the, the chaos. May we see Jesus. Just pray over every person in the room right now that finds themselves in a, in a combat that they feel like they can't win. God, let today be a day where you inject fresh faith into their veins and they would fight with more ferocity than they have before because they recognize the battle's not done until you've already won. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who it's like a banner that waves over our circumstance declaring that our enemy's defeated and victory is ours. Before we conclude, as you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, maybe there's someone here today who 
would say, hey, Tim, I, I, um, I feel like the, the valley I find myself in is one where I keep getting beat down because I've never looked to Jesus. I've never seen the one who took the cross. Maybe you did in the past, but you've been running from him for a season, you've been distant, and he's drawing you back to himself today. I, I believe that he brought you here this morning so that he can inspire you to step into relationship with him. The beauty of the scriptures says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not a complicated process. It's a simple declaration of your lips and a condition of your heart to say, I'm making you Lord today. And in that moment, you gain a banner over your life that enables you to stand in a place of victory. If that's you and you recognize that you've been far from God and you don't wanna stay there today, I wanna pray a very simple prayer of commitment with you as we do every single weekend. But without anyone looking, would you just acknowledge yourself real quick and say, that's me. Lift your hand and tell me who you are so I know who I'm praying with this morning. Got you, thanks, man. Yeah, I got you right there, cool. Yeah, over here, right on, hey, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Thanks, man. Anybody else? Oh, got you. I'm sorry. I see you up there in the rafters. Yeah. Cool. All right. As a, oh, my bad, bro. I got you. As a family, um, let's pray out loud with all these making this decision. And uh, let's make sure they don't feel alone. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to be your disciple, and to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's lift one more shout of victory for all those making that decision this morning. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.